I'm Eric Taros. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Craig Bartok. Beatles, naked. just now was of course tomorrow never knows which 
If, if you're not familiar with this song, you're probably in the wrong place. And uh, this is an extremely rare version, only available on the first day of the UK pressings, okay? So the, the standard mono mix was remix eight. And what you've just heard is remix 11. And for whatever reason, there was a, a swap out and uh, right at the last minute. And so they, I guess George Martin had to, you know, shut down the, the pressing plant or whatever that where they were making the records. And, and they substituted remix number eight for the one you just heard. Do you think that the mastering engineer was doing acid? Uh, there's a distinct possibility at that time. Because that's what this show is about, the impact of drugs on the Beatles during this pivotal period. Well, one of the reasons I really had a passion for doing this show was when I was working on Eight Days a Week, the touring years, I thought we had a golden opportunity to talk about something. In Anthology, there is that section where they talk about dropping acid in in Los Angeles with, uh, you know members of the birds and Peter Fonda somehow showed up. I find that that particular day is a is the line of demarcation for me. They, if you listen to the different interviews and then the music after that point, it starts getting more and more reflective, introspective, psychedelic, as they get deeper and deeper into the sort of acid. Um, and so I thought we had an opportunity to really play that up because there actually is film. There's, you know, home movies that Tony Barrow made, which you guys have seen. Some of them were used in uh, Eight Days a Week, though they they decided to use it as, as vacation footage from January of 66, as opposed to uh, the couple of days off in Los Angeles on the 65 tour that it actually was. But that is supposedly footage right from August 24th. And I... I also have a little problem with, is it really August 24th or was it August 25th that the the acid was dropped? Because some reports say that, if you listen to what the Beatles say, after they dropped acid and hung out all day by the pool, they watched Cat Baloo um, with some groupies and starlets. Uh, whereas the real timeline might show you that they went to a party where they met Groucho Marx and people. Can you imagine meeting Groucho Marx on acid? <laughs> you know, so that would be a weird yeah. day. So I, I wonder which day it really is. But the point is, is August, late August on a day off in Benedict Canyon. That's a historic moment for me. And I thought, could we trace what happens to the Beatles from that day forward? You know, how long does it take be- before it becomes very obvious something's going on? And so- right, because just to get the timeline straight, it's earlier in the year, of course, that George and John have acid dropped on them. A dentist in London laid it on George, me and our wives without telling us at a dinner party at his house. He was a friend of George's and our dentist at the time. Or I, and he just put it in our coffee or something, yeah. And we went... He, he was saying, I advise you not to. He didn't know what it was. It was just a sort of, you know, it's all the thing, you know, with the sort of the middle class London swingers or whatever. I hadn't all heard about it and they didn't know it was different from pot or pills. And they gave us it and he was saying, I advise you not to leave. And we thought he was all trying to keep us for an orgy in his house and we didn't want to know, you know. And we went out to the ad lib and these discotheques and it was 
incredible things going on. This guy came with us, he was nervous, he didn't know what was going, what we were going crackers, you know. <laughs> I mean, we did, it was insane going around London on it, and we thought when we went to the club, we thought it was on fire, and then we thought it was a premier, oh no, we thought it was a premier, it was just an ordinary light outside. We thought, shit, what's going on here, you know? And we were cackling in the street, and then, you know, people were shouting, Chatting, let's break a window. You know, we were just insane. I mean, we just had our heads, and people had come up to me. We finally got, we got in the lift, and we all thought there was a fire in the lift. It was just a little red light, and we were all screaming like that. And it erupted all hysterical. And we all arrived on the floor because this was a discotheque that was up a building. You know, we get, and the lift stops, and the door opens, and we're all go, ah! and we just see that it's the club. And then we walk in, you know, sit down, and we're. You know, and the tables elongated. I think we went to eat before that, and it was like in the thing I'd read about opium, where the table suddenly... I suddenly realised that it was only a table like this with four of us, but it went this long. Just like I'd read somebody... Who's the... Blake, is it? Somebody describing the effects of the opium in the old days. And I thought, fucking, it's happening, you know. And then we went to the ad lib and all that, and then some oh. singer came up to me and said, can I sit next to you? And I was going, only if you don't talk! You know, like... Because <laughs> I was, just couldn't think. We got to the nightclub and we went in and we parked the car and we went in and we tried to, uh, oh, we sat down and ordered our drinks and and then suddenly I, I felt just this most incredible feeling. Something like a very concentrated version of the best feeling I'd ever had in my life. It was just like, Fantastic. I just felt like in love, but not with anything in particular or anybody, just with everything. It just everything was perfect. Just, you know, the lighting and... I mean, I had this overwhelming desire to go around this club telling everybody how much I loved them, people I'd never seen before. Anyway, then one thing led to another and suddenly it felt like... Um, a bomb had hit a direct hit on the nightclub and the roof had got blown off it. What's going on here? And I pulled my senses together and I realised that the, night, the club had actually closed and they, all the people had gone and they'd put the lights on and the waiters were going around bashing uh, tables and putting chairs on top of the tables. And, uh, whew, you know, what's going on here? We better get out of here. So we got out and we went to go to this other disco, which is called the Ad Lib Club. And we had, it was just a short walk. And we walked and things weren't the same that night as they'd been. It's difficult to explain, but just, it was all this Alice in Wonderland stuff was going on. But strange things. It seemed to go on all night. I can't remember the details. It just went on like that. And then George, somehow or another, managed to drive us home in his Mini. But we were going about 10 miles an hour. It seemed like a 1,000. And uh, Patty was saying, let's jump out and play football. You know, there's these big rugby posts and things like that. And I was getting all this sort of hysterical jokes coming out, like a speed, because I was always on that. Too. So, oh, you know, and George was going, Tell him you laugh! Oh, and, you know, <laughs> God, it was just terrifying. You know? <laughs> but it was fantastic. I did some drawings at the time, I've gone on somewhere, like four faces saying, we all agree with you, you know, and all things like that. I gave them to Ringo, lost the originals. I, I did a lot of drawing that night, just like that. And then George's house seemed to be 
uh, you know, just like a big submarine, I was driving it. They all went to bed. I was carrying on on my own. They seemed to float above his wall, which was 18 foot. You know, I was right driving them. <laughs> it's a wild experience for them, but they don't repeat it until this August day when Ringo joins them. And then Paul is the guy on the outside, right? And it's all this peer pressure and Paul being Paul, he's only going to do what he wants to do. And so it isn't until the day after the end of their UK tour in December that he, with Tara Guinness, actually drops acid. Yeah, there's a story about that with a... Uh, also, Viv Prince, the drummer from uh, The Pretty Things, he was in on that as well. And uh, McCartney tells some pretty funny stories about how they were all, you know, McCartney felt it was peer pressure that he had to do this. And and f as he said in his own words, fear pressure, because now the rest of the band had done acid and he was the holdout. Mm. And he said that, you know, maybe people were thinking, hey, what's wrong with this guy? It was starting to create a, a, a schism within the band. So what this means is that Rubber Soul, which was recorded in October and November of 65, three of them had taken acid. Paul hadn't. But by the time they embark on the Revolver sessions, then Paul's in on it as well. And you can really, you can see Paul leaning towards it, I think, in his writing. Let's look at Rubber Soul. Yeah. And, you know, throw this open to everyone. Do you hear any sort of change in sensibility we know there's obviously an advance there always is from one Beatles album to the next even within a matter of months but do you hear something different going on Rubber Soul in terms of introspection or even boldness some kind of expansion of thought I mean Craig do you hear anything there I hear both those things I don't necessarily hear anything that would suggest any um, any drug use that would be want to be flaunted in their songs um they're they're obviously i well indirectly i guess if you're looking at it in the aspect that um that yeah they're more they're more introspective and they're really soul searching at this point and they're not afraid to say what they're really feeling so i think that might be a product of the drug use well as far as acidic songs though i certainly day tripper or think for yourself or or, or even nowhere man Nowhere, yeah. I mean, Nowhere Man, it's like obviously post-acid, maybe John's ego was a little destroyed. That seems to be the kind of song he would come up with, that someone would come up with if they'd had this altering experience where they suddenly felt very insignificant. I got a message on acid that used to destroy your ego, and I did, you know. I, I was reading that stupid book of Leary's and all that shit, you know. We're going through all the a whole game that everybody went through. I destroyed my ego, you know, and uh, I didn't believe I could do anything, you know, and uh, I let Paul do what he wanted and say of them all, just do what they wanted, and I just was nothing, I was shit. You know? Alan, is that where you were approaching it from, the, the, the sort of lack of ego, or is there something else you're hearing in there? I think, you know, with Nowhere Man, it's born out of some sort of frustration at not being able to come up with anything, and that right. was... Uh, you know, the, the sort of self-criticism kicked in, and, and you could draw a line thematically between this and I'm a loser, you know. Um, yeah. But mm -hmm. the spirit of Nowhere Man strikes me as it's sort of if you play those two songs and say one of them was written after the composer took acid, um, I would 
without hesitation pick Nowhere Man as the one of the two because uh, it's it's introspective in a in a very strange way. I mean, I'm a loser is woven into the sentiment is woven into a little story. You know, it's a it's still a boy girl thing, whereas Nowhere Man is is just you know looking at himself and i think looking at himself in a in a way that has a kind of interest introspection that you might associate with an acid experience you see the song for me that i would have thought was an acid experience was the word but according to both john and paul it was mainly john's song but they did collaborate it was a pot song uh, I, I know paul said in the miles book we smoked a bit of pot, then we wrote out a multicolored lyric sheet, the first time we'd ever done that. We normally didn't smoke when we were working. It got in the way of songwriting because it would just cloud your mind up. Oh shit, what are we doing? It's better to be straight, but we did this multicolor thing. So, I mean, they're very clear that this was done on marijuana, but it has for me that kind of acidy sensibility. You know, it's so fine, it's sunshine, it's the word love. But you see, Richard, I mean, regardless of how they wrote it, when they recorded it, they had already done acid, so... Right, yes. Yeah. Well, from a lyric standpoint, I think that I, I think that's a good point, because the difference between I'm a loser is more of a standard... It's a love song. At Nowhere Man is, if you want to associate it with acid, it's the, it's the loss of ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And um, that's what everybody always says, you know, you sort of come to terms with what your ego is and what it isn't. And that's very much what Nowhere Man is about. But what about the word, Craig? Do you hear, as Alan said, even if it wasn't in the composition, do you hear acid in the recording? I think you could imagine it being in there, but I don't personally hear it. And I never really thought of that as being an acid song. Right. I mean, I, th- I think it's just about, it's, it's a very good sounding electric, you know, on an album that has a lot of great acoustic guitars. It's just a very good sounding electric recording. I think right. if you were to look for acid in the recording of Word, um, it would have to be in that sort of big organ play out. Just because that to me sounds like the roots of vanilla fudge are in that song in that section of that song and vanilla fudge I that's because it's being distorted yeah now. i think of i think of vanilla fudge is sort of already in the acid era too so because even if it isn't that evident in rubber soul there's no doubt that the beatles world changed when they started dropping acid voluntarily right Mm -hmm. it just changed their whole perspective on things it did open their minds as you said it made them also more inward looking and it just changes everything. I mean, if they never dropped acid, there's no revolver. Mm-hmm. Well, they might have kept playing the teeny bopper game a lot longer. I mean, they decided it wasn't after acid. It just they just couldn't really keep it up for very much longer, or or the charade of playing out on the road. Um, but that's just not them, it's, right? I agree. They 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 they, um, they exhibited that early by dropping. I want to hold your hand as like a hot potato as soon as they could. Yeah. So that's just who they were. And, you know, and I think that the bottom line with, with um, Rubber Soul is it's the first time they said, hey, we can actually write songs for ourselves. We don't have to write for other people. We don't have to think about what other people think. I can express what I want to express as an artist. Yeah. And also, every bit as much a part of them was experimenting with drugs, right? You know, whether it was the booze or the, the speed, you know, the pot, 
that was just kind of who they were. They were always pushing the envelope and looking for new experiences. There's no way they were going to stay in the mop top mode for very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they did that pre-Beatles too. They did that in Hamburg. They did that in art school. Right. They did it, you know, it, it's just who they are exactly, and who they were. So yeah. it's it's a logical progression when you when you sort of chart it out. If you want to do a pie graph, you can def, definitely just chart it out all the way from you know, Hard Day's Night all the way to uh, Revolver. It's just it's it's an interesting study. I mean, you know, what we can always look for things, right, and put two and two together and come up with sixteen because right. it's like the cover. As we know from Robert Freeman, that was a happy accident, how that photo right. worked out. But you could look at it and say, well, that's a, the first that was slightly strange cover on a Beatles album. Oh, certainly. And, and the, the hand-drawn logo of Rubber Soul, which is reminiscent of what, uh, you know, Stanley Mouse and people like that were going to be doing on the West Coast with all of the psychedelic rock and roll posters, which were just about to happen around that time. Now, do you hear Day Tripper as an acid song? I never have, actually. I know there's that play on words. I've always just thought of it as, you know, a one-night stand. Um, And the trippy thing, well, that could be anything, couldn't it? That could be the marijuana. I suppose it's the the double entendre of Tripper. You know, it could have been Day Smoker or it could have been, I don't know, Naughty Lady or whatever. You know, John always used to say, this is about a Naughty Lady. No, but then you don't have the double entendre, do you? Because that's the whole point. A day tripper, you're taking a day trip. Yeah. So you've got to use tripper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess my point is is that one doesn't trip on marijuana. One trips on acid. Yeah, it's true. I think Norwegian would, when you hear how did suddenly the sitar come into this, um, well, he got fascinated with the sitar on the set of Help. But he also said that the notes just came to him, which always, I wonder if pre-acid he would ever have thought that or been brave enough or uh, approached the instrument, because it was a sacred instrument. One thing about George, he was always very reverent uh, about how you handled a sitar. Technically, you were supposed to wash your hands, all these different things. For him to just... But would he have been doing that in 1965? Well, I I wonder if kind of doubt it. I wonder if he would have felt like I can just grab this thing and 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 feel comfortable enough that I will know how to get notes out of it. I I mean I I don't know. I mean I I've always theorized though that that because he had done acid, that barrier came down, and he's yeah I can, I can come up with something. It's a stringed instrument, and I think any musician is, especially a guitar player, is going to want to pick up a stringed instrument and try to make some kind of noise out of it. And uh, well, it, I think it, with that particular song, if you look at what ended up, he's uh, George is basically playing the melody. Um, and if you listen to some of the outtakes when he's answering yeah. um, John, he's sort of doing some kind of bending things. He's almost playing blues on. At that point, it's not. He really doesn't have a grasp of the instrument. He is sort of picking at uh, notes, trying to find something that works. But he ends up just playing the safe route and playing um, the melody that John's singing yes. for a um, for his solo. Yeah, you, we kind of almost hear him learning to play the instrument on on those early takes. On those outtakes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so we get to Revolver, and well, it's we, like what th- what a, has happened? Well, there's a little what bit has of, happened in between. Well, in between, I think one of the things, as you say, Paul is now still the holdout, right? They've all dropped acid, but he now that the now that the guys are all out in the stockbroker belt, he's the last sort of man about town bachelor 
uh, living in St. John's Wood, and he's starting to hang out, hang out a lot more with Barry Miles and John Dunbar, and he's going to gallery things, he's going to events, that the other guys, because they're out in Weybridge or out in Surrey, uh, well, maybe it's more of a hassle for them to go to. <laughs> As he diplomatically described John in his pipe and slippers in Weybridge. Yeah, well, likely. <laughs> you know... That little <laughs> dig here, little dig there, you know. I'm sure that went on from day one with those guys. But but I think there's that period where Barry Miles is having an, an influence. You know, he's taking uh, Paul around to art events. And Paul, me, according to Barry, and Paul was teaching him about rhythm and blues records and Motown and stuff. So they were kind of teaching each other. That's around that time if you could play, this would be a decent time to play this uh, very experimental, sometimes known as the avant-garde tape. Around this time, Miles and McCartney were, were set up a little uh, recording studio with two Revox tape recorders and a couple of microphones. And ostensibly, this was to start, it was almost like the roots of Zapple Records. They were going to record uh, poetry readings and art happenings and and. The idea was to almost put out like a magazine. You know, Barry Miles wanted to put out an audio magazine. So at first they were going to have the studio. Brian Epstein was going to buy a building. They were going to have this up on the top floor of the building. That fell through. So they ended up setting it up in Ringo's old apartment in Montague Square. And so the thing you're going to hear now, I, I call this the, this is sort of the roots of Tomorrow Never Knows, because, or at least the loops part of it. Uh, and also, I'm not sure when this was recorded. It could have been any time from the summer of 65 to the spring of 66. But to me, what you're about to hear, I kind of think this is after Paul has dropped some acid. So have a listen, see what you think. The carousel of life. one thing that um, Eric didn't mention when he was talking about Miles getting Paul into art openings and talking about rhythm and blues is that Paul was also going to classical new music concerts at that point. And in interviews, he particularly mentioned um, works by Luciano Berrio and Caroline Stockhausen. And Stockhausen in particular was doing a lot of electronic stuff, mixed media, mixes of electronic and live, that kind of thing. And um, I, can, I can see how that influenced what Paul was doing um, quite a lot, maybe a little bit less Luciano Berrio, but, um, but Stockhausen definitely. Absolutely. I mean, in particular, there was a track, uh, a, a piece that Stockhausen did called Gesang der Junglinge, which is the song of the young boys, um, which is made of voices and electronic sound and is just a very kind of freaky thing that if, if 
what you're used to is what Paul was used to in terms of rock music and and whatever other more normal influences he had, uh, this thing would have come as a, a, a bolt out of the blue um, if he was in a particular state of mind, including a state of mind that might have been helped by certain of these substances we're talking about. And, um, and I think that sort of began to push him in the direction of some of these you know, backwards tapes and things like that. Right before they start the sessions for Revolver, Paul and Barry Miles go out to the Italian Cultural Institute in Belgrave Square, uh, February February of 66, February 23rd, very late in the month, and they see Luciano Berrio, and he's talking about a song that I could never find, but I, I think they meant uh, Omaggio a Joyce. We are definitely post-acid Paul now, so I think it was definitely having an effect. Yeah, and also we should say that this is a period, right, where they're not touring, they're not making films, and so that's why I understand when George said in Anthology... I don't see too much difference myself in Rubber Soul and Revolver. To me, they could both be like Volume 1 and Volume 2. I know people try to connect Revolver with Pepper, but I, I can get it from George's point of view because it plays into what you were saying, Eric. It's post-acid. It's, they're now on this trip. And as I said, there were no tours or, well, apart from yeah, the UK, the short UK tour. Otherwise, there was no kind of big world tour and no film to do in between. Yeah, no big project. So another reason George might have felt the two were connected uh, might, may have been that there was only about five months between them. You know, one ends in sort of November and the other one picks up at the first week of April. Right. And it's once Paul jumps in as well, of course, that's going to have a huge influence, right? Once he's taken acid as well and can share in that, that could be another good reason why we go from Rubber Soul to The Void. And of course, uh, John and George, meantime, especially John, is probably gobbling this stuff every other day. So yeah. they're getting deeper and deeper into that, which really reflects, I think, obviously, as we all think, in Revolver. Craig, do you get what George was saying about Rubber Soul and Revolver being like Volume 1 and Volume 2? Can you understand that? Yeah, I always get a big kick out of that that comment because it's just, I think it's just George not being the ultimate Beatle fan. Um, I noticed like that when that one scene where they're all kind of sitting around the mixing board and Paul yeah. kind of like makes fun of George for saying that. And it's like, yeah, you know, George isn't really a historian and, and, and probably would think of it that way. But um, I, I think it's more of just George being George and, and not really being the ultimate Beatle fan at the end of the day. 
But you know what? He said it at the time. I think what's interesting is that even songs that ended up acidic, I think we'd all agree that She Said, She Said is about as acidic as you get. If you listen to the demos of that, the demos in the style of, you know, Run For Your Life or, or, or the sort of folksy country, sort of over the country tones that you, you experience in Rubber Soul. I, you know, maybe that was just John's style of writing at the time. Well, look, I mean, he's inspired to write that song by the incident with Peter Fonda, right, in L.A., but they're not recording it yet, so he's just putting down the basic idea. Once they get in the studio, now they can embellish it with more acidic sounds, if you like. Oh, yes, indeed. And, and I mean, that was the style of what was going on at the time. I just wonder if he had ever done it in the style of what goes on or that kind of, you know, country. I say I always hear a country vibe. I know everybody says a folk vibe. I always feel it's kind of countryish in, in a weird way, Rubber Soul. Um, it just seemed that they were more comfortable with that at a certain point and then they got deeper into acid and veered completely away from that and got into you know what they got into second time we had it in la which is different then we took it deliberately well, we were on tour in one of those houses like you know doris day's house or whatever it was we used to stay and the three of us took it ringo george and i and i think maybe neil and a couple of the birds you know crosby and mcguin they came i think they came around i'm not sure on a few trips they all, like that, but there were some English reporters with us, like Don Short, and that. And we were in the garden, had it. It was only the second one. We still didn't know anything about do it in a nice place and cool it and all that. We just took it, you know. And then we suddenly saw the reporter, and we think, how do we act normally? We because we imagined we were acting extraordinary, which we weren't. He thought, surely somebody can see, you know. And we're terrified, waiting for him to go. And he wondered why he couldn't come over. And Neil, who ne- had never had it either, had taken it. And he, he still had to play road manager. We said, go and get rid of Don Short. And he didn't know what to do. He just sort of sat with it. And Peter Fonda came. And that was another thing. And he kept up saying, I know what it's like to be dead. And he said, what? Mm-hmm. And he kept saying it, you know. He was saying, for Christ's sake, shut up. We don't care. <laughs> you know, we don't want to know. And he kept going on about it. And that's how I wrote, she said, she said. I know what it's like to be dead. In L.A., Paul felt very out of it because we were all a bit, a bit slightly cruel, you know, so we we're taking it in your not. But we kept seeing him, you know, and we'd be going up and say, and we couldn't eat our food, you know. We, yeah. I just couldn't manage it. We'd be picking it up with the hands and we'd say, hey, fucking, the, the, there's all these people sort of serving us in the house and that. And we're just sort of knocking it on the floor and then, oh, like that. We'll get to She Said, She Said later on. But for now, let's go back to Tomorrow Never Knows and dive into take one of that track.
That's me and my uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead period. And the expression Tomorrow Never Knows was another of Ringo's. So I gave it a throwaway title because I was a bit self-conscious about the, the lyrics of Tomorrow Never Knows. So I took one of Ringo's malapropisms, mm -hmm. which was like Hard Day's Night, and sort of to take the edge off the heavy philosophical lyrics. In terms of the evolution of the song, that first take is really kind of primitive. You know, the rhythm is completely square, and not, not that it's that flexible in the finished version but it hasn't got the sort of heavy drums that that uh, are part of the feel of the finished version and uh and there are some you know unusual kinds of of, of of sounds that they're using that i think were sort of lost in the process um but you can kind of see where they're headed um i'm i'm not sure i would think it would be that easy to see if that was the only take of it i had heard and hadn't finished the heard the finished version but um but now that we know them both it's uh you you can you can see how it leads to the the completed version which is immensely better than where they started well yeah i mean it, it's a drone isn't it take one is basically mm -hmm. a drone yeah. Well, actually, all of it, and even the finished one, in a certain way, is a drone. Yeah. I mean, they had this idea that they wanted to write a song with only one note or one chord, and it basically almost is one chord, except that it, it you know, it moves down a step very briefly at the end of uh, of the line. Um, but it's it's like uh, what I think you know, a B flat chord for most of it, and then moves down to sort of A flat. Craig? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, when you first heard it, Craig, were you disappointed? Because I have to tell you, when, you know, I read Mark Lewison's description of it in his recording sessions book and said that in its own way, it's every bit as fascinating as the finished take. And it was like, wow, I can't wait to hear it. I was disappointed when I first heard it. What was your reaction? Yeah, I know you mentioned that to me before. Um, I was blown away the first time I heard it. At, at the time, I was doing a lot of R&B. And... Um, you know, R&B is based around loops, and um, or at least it was at that time. And when I f first heard this, I was like, oh, my God, this is like, here's the Beatles doing this drum loop and this and these sounds. And, I mean, I think it is revolutionary. And, I mean, obviously it's not nearly as good as what they ended up with, which is the case with so many Beatles songs. They, they refined it. Um, but it is eye-opening, just the fact that they would even try something like that. And um, they're slowing things down way to... A, a, they're, they're taking things to an extreme on that demo, I really feel. And that's got, it's got to be acid, hasn't it? That, you know, I mean, we know it's about acid, but I mean, just that whole... How they've come in on the very first track. They haven't worked their way up to this. It's like, this is where they come in. They've oh, got yeah, a new engineer. Obviously, they've got Jeff Emmerich now behind the board, a young guy who's willing to push the envelope more. He's not so much of, a, of an EMI guy as Norman Smith had been. Uh, but it's just an amazing thing that they come straight in like that. They never did that on any previous album. No, absolutely. It's, it really is um, eye-opening. You know, the thing is, is when you're dealing with a song that is a drone or a single chord like that, 
you know, you do have to do some things to make it rather interesting. So if they would have stayed on that tack with that first um, that first take, who knows what they would have layered on top of it. If Paul would have brought in his laughing loops and they would have brought in the, the, the little orchestral bits and all that stuff. You know, that's the thing that makes it interesting. Um, the drums aren't nearly as good. Um, as what ended up with uh, with, with Ringo, uh, what he did on the finished version. But it's still yeah. eye-opening. The drums remind me of sort of like uh, Ticket to Ride on Quaaludes or something. You know, that's <laughs> that's exactly what it is. It's just, Yeah, it's just a beat, just a, a, a looped beat. But again, it's simple, and yet it's just so perfect for that song. He got it right again. Oh, you mean in the, the we're still on the first take though. I mean, I think that if the drumming gets very exciting with the finished version, to me, that's what I, I meant. I, I meant on the finished version. Oh yeah, I think it's yeah. wonderful. I mean, and the fact that he did it live all the way through, and that was the one thing you kind of think is a loop, and in fact, it's not. So, I find that kind of uh, exciting as well. I, I think the idea that this was almost. Uh, this was almost the dry run for Revolution Number no. Nine, where you've got these guys in the control booths doing a live mix with, you know, making these loops out here and kind of trying to. As I remember John Lennon saying uh, at the time, "Yeah, Paul brought in some of his loops, and one of them was just about in key." I think he means <laughs> the uh, the orchestral tape, which we can play the isolation of now, and this is what it sounds like. I, I don't know if I've played this for you before, Richard, but this is the loop, and then. Mm -hmm. uh, I messed about with it a little bit to see if we could get it to sound like the record that he sampled it off of. And, and so here it is very quickly. We wrote the song, and it was a very funny start song from the start because John came up with the lyrics to it. And he'd just been reading Tibetan Book of the Dead. And he, want, he was dead impressed by it, you know, very impressed. <laughs> and uh, he decided that he'd... Um, write the song and we only had one verse and I think we stretched it to sort of two verses and we couldn't think of any more words because we sort of said it all what we wanted to say in about two verses so we had to try and work out how to sort of do it and how to make it different so I decided to do some of those those loops that I've been doing on my home tape recorder and they're just tape loops and I'd been making them so I just took a longer a, a, a bag full of six tape loops to the session and we just tried them and mixed them in and brought them in in those places and so, uh, so I suppose it was sort of vaguely my idea that bit of it tape recorders in your house? Yes. A few do loops and whatever you do. Ah, loops. From tomorrow never knows. Paul said that he just took a few of his loops to the studio. Yes, he made them at home on his tape in the key of whatever the key was and they were just nearly in. And yeah. we had six fellows with pencils holding them on. Yeah. On six machines and uh, fairly desirable the whole effect, I thought. What excites me, guys, about this song and in many ways I think it's one of the most important 
songs the Beatles ever did. This is kind of laying out the groundwork for the next 50 years of what's going to happen in music. You've got sampling in here. You've got the, the idea of these sort of tape loops. There's a sort of chance element to it. It's it's taking like, it, it's really not even music. I mean, it's music in places, but it's sort of like music that non-musicians could make. It's It's got some uh, elements of hip hop in it in many ways. Absolutely. It has all the bells and whistles that are going that are going to come in the years future. It's just really an amazing song. It really is. You know, how far they pushed it. You know, beforehand, they're hinting about drugs in songs, right? It's a word here or a line there. And it's little in-jokes. And that's them pushing it a bit. But here it's like, my God, like you said, on steroids, just gone completely full bore. I mean, anyone who's listening to that, even in 1966, and doesn't think something different's going on inside their heads, really isn't with it. Well, and the the great thing too uh, for those uh, for those listeners that are in Europe or around the world, and you did not have the Beatles Saturday morning cartoon, this is one of the songs I point to, which I think is so amazing. Can you imagine a little six or seven year old kid like I was? Uh, they used every single Beatles song at one way or another if they could, and animated it. And they actually made a little Saturday morning cartoon version of Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, with the, that the kiddies were supposed to sing along to. So I can imagine my parents walking downstairs and I'm going, you know, turn off my mind, relax. You know, oh my God. You know, it was insane. I mean, it's you can look it up. It's, uh, it's one of the more interesting uh, and one of the more trippy little cartoons they ever did for that show. So, Alan, you know, when you're listening to the finished take, and obviously we've got John's lyrics in there, we've got his vocal, we know we've got Paul's tape loops, and we've got, you know, the backwards guitar and Ringo's drumming, but what are you hearing in terms of what Paul is contributing there? Are you hearing the stuff that came from Miles, you know, going out with Miles and the experiences around London? Uh, yeah, I think you are in, in a way because of the tape loops. Um... Uh, this is something that I don't think rock bands were generally speaking experimenting with at the time, but but he was hearing these electronic things, um, and I would imagine also doing some reading on it, maybe getting some records and hearing what other composers were doing, and just sort of seeing where he could go from there. And uh, I think his his contribution kind of i mean in a certain way you could say it makes the song i mean you do have john's lyric and the whole atmosphere of it but but those loops are the things that really catch your ear from the time the track starts and uh and and you know i remember in those days just wondering what that was i mean it's you know i i, I was a kid i hadn't heard of tape loops <laughs> Mm. And uh, you know, or or even much about electronic music at the time, and uh, it just was so bizarre. I mean, this is a Beatles album for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, so. And Craig, you know, as a, a recording artist and as a producer, can you conceive of being in their position at this point in their career, where they're basically on top of the world, but they're they've also got now heavy competition, right? You know that there are other people on the scene who are pushing oh, yeah. the envelope as well and they're well aware of it mm -hmm. uh, but can you conceive yourself being in their position pushing it that far this boldly with this first track 
It's surprising. It really is. It's it's hard to imagine. I can just I have the visual of them all in the studio with all holding the pencils and the tape loops going around in different <laughs> rooms. And it just it's fascinating and it's just mind boggling that this is the first recording. And uh, you know, hats off to Jeff Emmerich. Yeah. It, I mean that also leads me to believe that that boldness also came from the acid. Oh, it had to. Have, I yeah. think so. I I definitely agree with you on that. Yeah. Well, you know, sequentially, the next song that they record is uh, what John Lennon would call uh, Paul's Acid Trip, right? Got to get you into my life. That, I think that was one of his best songs, too, because the lyrics are good and I didn't write them. You see? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so when I say that he could write lyrics if you took the effort, yeah. then there's the occasional song like that where it says, I took a ride. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not sort of wishy-washy. It actually describes his experience on taking acid. I think that's what he's talking about, really. Well, I couldn't swear to it, but I think it was a result of that. You know? We're going to play a special version of that song now, actually. Uh, and this is, uh, this is a mono version. It, as we all know, uh, the Beatles really cared a lot more in that period, still in that period, about the mono recordings and put a lot more care into them, the mono records, than the stereo mixes. So what you're about to hear here is actually eight seconds longer, and you'll notice the bass and the percussion is a little louder, a little punchier, and one of the cool things is, is there's an additional brass track that was kind of layered onto this to thicken up the sound, um, which they didn't do on the stereo version, and it, it's really just the same tr uh, brass section, but I think they just kind of cloned it and, and, and somehow fused it on top, uh, but it's got a totally different fade out, and uh, why don't we listen to it now? I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there Ooh, then I suddenly see you Just to hold you And had you gone You knew in time We'd meet again For I had told you
So is that from the mono release, basically, in the UK? That was the mono record in both the US and uh, and and the UK. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Because I'm more familiar with the stereo. You know, we all default to that, and and we we forget that it's kind of an interesting experience that the Beatles cared more about the mono records in that time period. Um, interesting, then, that you know they didn't subsequently. Once stereo was the thing, you know, once we're into the 70s, 80s, 90s, it's interesting that they didn't remix the stereo to match the mono. Well, isn't that what Lennon said that kind of pissed off George Martin? You know, like he'd remake every record that the Beatles ever did. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The next song that they did in the sequence uh, is one that I really have come to love, which is called Love You Too, which, you know, of course, two spelled T-O, which yeah. makes me wonder, what was it that George, you know... Would love you to Love do. you to what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the version of that we were going to play is also nine seconds longer. Thank you. 
started off, you know, just hearing Indian music and sort of listening to things, and we liked the drone idea because we'd done a bit of that kind of thing in songs before, you know. But George got very interested in it and went to a couple of Ravi Shankar concerts, and then he sort of met Ravi and sort of was knocked out by him and thought, like, just as a person, he's, a, he's an incredible fellow, you know, he's, he's one of the greatest. And uh, he thought he didn't know that George was serious about it. And so when he found out George was serious, he was knocked out too. So the two of them are having a great time. <laughs> and you know, that's how we've got Indian sounds on at the moment. Because the thing is, anyway, it's nice to sort of start bridging the two kinds of music. You know, because we, we just started off in a very simple way. And then this album's got a bit better. I mean, it's a little bit more like Indian music. And it helps people to understand it too, because it's very, it's very hard at first to understand, yeah. But once you get into it, it's the greatest. There's a quote of George's from 1966 referring to Indian classical music. He said, to me, it's the only really great music now, and it makes Western three or four beat type stuff seem somehow dead. You can get so much more out of it if you are prepared really to concentrate and listen. Would you agree, Craig? Yeah, it's it's very complicated music, and um, it's... If you want to take the time to invest in it, it's definitely worth the uh, the return. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of this as his first attempt at a full-blown sort of Western Indian song? It's really good. And um, the fact that it happens to be on this album with all these other, um, with all these other firsts, it's, it, it's really great. Alan, do you hear it as any kind of hybrid? You know, even though this is at the beginning of this kind of curve, you know, of Western-Eastern fusion, if you like. I mean, do you hear him drawing from other sources, apart from the obvious, apart from Ravi Shankar? Um, well, you know, he's playing in a style that, I mean, we, we always say Indian, but it's it's actually Hindustani, which is sort of northern area. There are different different kinds of of Indian music, and he has adopted... A bit of that Hindustani style in the sense that he begins with sort of a slow instrumental um, I think they I think the Indians call that section the a lap um, where he sort of provides what the musical materials of the song are going to be but sort of in a uh, not very exploratory way yet just sort of laying out what those materials are and then the song begins and that you know that that two-part um structure there of that intro and then the song uh with the tempo shift uh at at where the song begins is pretty much a, a classic hindustani structure mm. um so yeah it's definitely a hybrid uh i don't think any of us listening to it at the time would have necessarily known that much about that but uh it, partly because of George's involvement with Indian music um, and, you know, other forces around the world as well. I mean, the Indian music's become an awful lot more popular in, all, in the time since then. So we now can, can see a bit better what George was up to here. And George did say that LSD was basically the catalyst for his increased awareness and his interest in Eastern philosophy. Hmm. And probably gave him the attention to 
um, you know, listen and really get inside that music. He was very passionate in the press conferences on the 66 tour talking about how much he loved Indian music and he thought it was great music and he would be really pleased if people would give it a chance and listen to it. Um, he was quite adamant about it pretty early on. Uh, one of the things I love about Love You Too, as opposed to, you know, the next time he tries this with Within You and Without You, uh, which... It, Within You and Without You is obviously very beautiful and kind of seductive. I, there's an urgency and a menace to Love You Too that I really find interesting. It's like punk rock Indian music or something. The, the lyrics are pretty intense and, you know, there's people running around will screw you in the ground. And wow, okay, George, you know, I mean, the heaven and hell drug, you know, there it is. And again, the boldness, right? He's gone full bore. You know, I remember there was that photo in the Beatles Monthly magazine in 65 during the Rubber Soul sessions where it showed a lot of their instruments and there's a sitar there, you know, sitting there on the floor of Studio 2. And it says, you know, all the varied sounds that the Beatles now employ for their records. So that was like an embellishment, as we know. But here, again, that boldness to just go with it and most likely be aware that a huge part of their audience is going to have very little interest. Yeah. What's, fasc- what's fascinating, though, is, um, you know, we were just talking about Tomorrow Never Knows and, uh, and the drone aspect of that. And, yeah, the same thing here. And, obviously, these, he's breaking a number of rules of, of Western music by shifting tempo so radically in the song. But it does the same thing we were just talking about in Tomorrow Never Knows, where it holds the root and then it goes down a step. It, it's the same thing... Um, um, I'll make love to you, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. It's the same thing as, it is not dying, it is not dying. It's, it's, it's the exact same um, chord, uh, chord sort of uh, pattern. And so it's, it's, it's interesting they'd both be on the same album. I think yeah. I really liked the ending part, too. One of the things that really grabs me about it is it starts speeding up and going off into this psychedelic... Absolutely. It's like, come on, give me the rest. <laughs> you know, let's let's make it let's make a ten minute out of this one. I I really wonder and wish that there was a, an outtake somewhere where that jam, whatever the hell's going on there, I'd love to have heard how that resolved itself. But besides a fade out. So what's next in the sequence? Well, technically, what's next is uh, rain, and the version yeah. I was hoping we could play of rain. I mean. There's, there's so many to choose from, but the one I, I chose here was from, uh, for sentimental reasons, was during the summer of 1983, uh, Abbey Road Studios was down while they converted it to, or upverted it, as it were, to 48 track. And so there was this marvelous period where uh, there was a show. You could go and buy tickets, and right. you could sit there for 90 minutes, and they would play back Beatle tapes you'd never heard before. Um you know, while you sat in Studio Two with the monitors, the playback monitors were going the same ones the Beatles would have heard things through, and they had a little video show put together. So this mix of Rain is from that show. It was done specifically by a guy named John Barrett, who yeah. was the first person to actually catalog all this stuff before Mark Lewison got a chance to do it. Uh, he got to he was recuperating from cancer treatments, and he went through all of the tapes. A lot of those really exciting bootlegs. Uh, you know, that first came out on the first CD bootlegs of really great quality Beatle outtakes indirectly came from the John Barrett tapes. Um, I was supposed, I was slated to speak with him that summer. I was working on a college thesis that had to do with Beatles stuff. I know you're all shocked. And uh, 
he had a, you know, they, oh yeah, come, you know, I got message from him to, to be able to interview him. But by the time I got there in, you know, July or whatever, he was too ill uh, for anyone to really see him. So, um, so this is a little tribute to the great John Barrett, Turn Me On, Dead Man, and this is Rain. <laughs> Without Tomorrow Never Knows and Rain, there's no Oasis, right? Probably, probably not. Yeah. Uh, it's just another remarkable song, Rain, uh, in every way. You know, just uh, th- those harmonies, the bass line, Ringo's drumming, great vocals. Just a, a, an all-round remarkable song to put as a B-side as well. Of course, the, the other famous contribution here is backwards vocals. Rain. 
is that the first use of backward vocals in a pop record? Maybe vocals, but they had already used backwards guitar on Tomorrow Never Knows. So oh, the oh yeah, no, I, I'm speaking was... specifically of vocals here. Are you yeah. talking about an actual track over a, a forward track? Or just backwards vocals? Just just backwards vocals used in any pop record. They're coming anybody. to take me away, the B-side? Yeah, the B-side. <laughs> oh, was wow. that after? Yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> but you might be right about the fact that, you know, you're, if you're talking about a forward recording that with a a backwards uh, actual track, like a vocal track, then this probably could be the very first. And as George Martin said, once they'd discovered, you know, oh, we can do backwards guitars, now they want to do everything backwards. <laughs> We're going to leave that statement right where you put it, Richard. <laughs> but again, but, you know, but, but what a track that is, okay? I mean, yes, they've already done Tomorrow Never Knows, but this has got a real pop sound. It's got a real pop sensibility, and yet it's, it's just washed in acid. And slightly heavy metal, too. I mean, that, that effect of slowing it down, Craig, why, yes. I mean, so, it does something to the drums. I wish they'd done more of that. Well, here's what it does. It, um, if you slow down a tape, you can't do it on Pro Tools now or Logic. Um, it doesn't have the same effect. It basically makes everything lower and fatter sounding. So Ringo's drums, it would, it would have been as if Ringo took his entire kit and tuned the heads down. And um, it just uh, it just fills everything up and makes it much fatter. And this would be a good time also to mention that um, with Jeff Emmerich, he brought in um, he started using a Fairchild compressor, and um, that has a lot to do with the sound of these records we're talking about. The the glue that holds these together. The reason that like the earlier Beatles stuff doesn't have that sound that Emmerich has. Obviously, Emmerich was, wasn't afraid to do the close mm -hmm. miking, but the, um, the Fairchild 660 um, limiter compressors, I've used them before. I mean, even if you can see one nowadays, they run for about $30,000 at least a piece if you can find one. And there's good reason why. If you, if you put a track or you put Ringo's drums um, through these Fairchild compressors, it is magical. And, and the fact that they slowed that particular song down, it's, it's, it's really what you're hearing is you're hearing that aspect of it really coming through. Uh, Craig, I, while I got you on this subject, for our non-musician uh, listeners, you know, sure. um, explain compression to them. Because I, I get this sometimes while I'll talk about compression and people say, well, what the hell are you talking about? Uh. So you'd be much better at explaining that than me. Yeah, it's really um, what it what a compressor theoretically does. If you think about a a person who's sitting at a volume control, and and this person is waiting for the loud sounds, and he kind of as soon as he hears a loud sound, he says, "Oh, I, I'm going to go ahead and turn the volume down." He turns the volume knob down, then he slowly turns it back up again to where it was. So what it does is it it's supposed to. It was originally used like on AM radio for DJs to sort of make sure that there's nothing st stood out. Everything was very uniform. So it takes a it takes an instrument and any instrument that's like a piano or an electric guitar or drums and um, anything that has a big spike to the sound. What it does is as soon as it hears that spike, it drops the volume and then slowly brings it back up again. So by doing that, what it does is it sort of what would be the way to describe it? It sort of fills in the gaps. 
It so kind of makes, it, I, I've always, is this accurate to say it takes the soft stuff and makes it louder and takes the loud stuff and makes it softer and it kind of, kind of makes it all almost uniform instead of it, this kind of spiky mountains and valleys thing? It does. That's that's exactly the, the thing. So what it does is it, it brings up the the softer parts and so what what it's going to do okay in this in this specific example if you have Ringo's drums if is if a snare drum is a snap what you're going to hear is when you you get it you run it through a compressor is you're going to hear the stuff that comes after the snap louder because it's going to bring up that volume so now all of a sudden you hear Ringo snares a lot more predominantly than you did before so it's changing the actual it's the actual sound of the drums. So if you did a compressor on the sound of a room and you had drums um, in it, all of a sudden now, after you hear the snare drum hit, the compressor is going to bring up that volume because it's just reacted to the snare drum. It's going to bring up the volume. And all of a sudden now you're going to hear the room a lot more and the room is going to sound larger than life. And um, the, the Beatles used compression, you know, and people have been chasing that compression that I would consider uh, on this Revolver album, I would consider people still trying to chase it to this day. I mean, obviously, Jeff Lynne, you know, compresses everything, you know, and, and people compress things to death. They compress entire records, and they try to get everything to, and it fills in that those holes, but that's basically what it does. And, you know, we should also talk about Paul's bass here, right? You know, we've got Paperback Writer and Rain, right. where he suddenly takes bass playing on a pop record to another level. Now, we're talking about the boldness that may have come from Acid. There's also the boldness of their personalities. They were bold people. They were bold artistically. We well know that from album to album, there was always a huge progression. And how long is Paul McCartney going to stay in the background playing bass? He's going to push himself forward. So that's all part of their natural evolution. But again, he does sound turned on, doesn't he, with his bass playing? Oh, and in Absolutely. this track, when they slow down the drums, to me, it, it, the bass is, in this one song is weaving through the drums in a way that they sound so unified to me, almost like they never do again, almost like they're one strange new instrument. Right. And listen to how high his bass part is. Listen to how high up on the bass he's playing, especially when in the intro, he's playing really, really high. And it, it's interesting if you ever speed this song up and you listen to it in its original tempo, he's way up there. Yeah, and the other thing I love is that unconventional break, right, where it's just the bass and drums and you're kind of, it's sort of staggered and you're <laughs> waiting for it to kick back in. And, you know, I know, you know, played that song, you know, in a rehearsal studio and the bass player and the drummer had to kind of get their act together figure out what was going on there they have to actually look at each other and that's a psychedelic moment if you if you speak to anybody who who dropped acid they tell you that it distorts your perception of time so all of a sudden things are kind of like um, a bit out of whack and then yeah so that that to me is a very acid moment where like oh what do we do now oh yeah Let's go back. Let's go back to playing. We're looking at ourselves yeah. at the other end of a telescope. Uh-oh. Yeah, better get back to playing. Lennon was the king of um, of, of adding extra measures in yeah. his songs. But it also has that, that same sort of laconic um, feeling in a way that Nowhere Man had. You know, it's... It's it maybe it's raining. It's not raining. It's shining. I don't mind. You know, <laughs> it's just... Uh, yeah. It's just sort of a, a 
a very strange song lyrically as well as uh, as musically. I think mm. strange good. Yeah. With rain being recorded on the fourteenth of April, on the seventeenth they tackle. Uh, not so much an acidic song, but a song about drugs, and that's Dr. Robert. Right. So this is about uh, a guy named Max Jacobson, uh, who was uh, a sort of Dr. Feelgood to the stars and to presidents, because he was uh, JFK's... uh, uh, JFK's... uh, Pharmacist. Thank you, pharmacist. And uh, certainly no friend to Bobby Kennedy, who... uh, I guess kind of laid some truth on JFK at a certain point about how often uh, and how dangerous this stuff was. He would uh, he had a kind of concoction of quote unquote vitamins and uh, stimulants, and he would uh, come by with his with his works and shoot people up, and they would feel better. And when confronted, I know uh, JFK when confronted by his brother, who was very anti-drug, uh, you know, saying that hey, this who knows what's in this stuff. JFK's response to his brother was, I don't care if it's horse piss, it works. Hmm. But I, <laughs> Which, I mean, you, you know, but you still say the, the subject matter, but also musically, again, you know, don't you hear the sort of, there's like a kind of droney effect going on there. There are hanging notes. It's, uh, it, again, it's not the conventional Beatles sound that we've been used to. Especially the backing vocals, I think that you know that echo vocal that McCartney's doing is slightly menacing. Once again, hmm. there uh, are also the backing vocals in the "Well, Well, Well, You're Feeling Fine" part yes. that um, are differently audible, let's say, in the British mono than in either the American mono or the American stereo or the British stereo. It's it's just a different mix. Because in America, we got that track early. We got it on yesterday and today. Of course. And uh, along with I'm Only Sleeping and uh, a couple of, well, one other thing. There were three three tracks just ripped off the British revolver and put on, on yesterday and today. And so presumably the mono mix that we got for that album was a preliminary mix um and you don't really hear what's going on in the backing vocals during the well 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 you're feeling fine section which in the british mono they are doing first you know a descending line and then an ascending chromatic line it's very strange i mean it's uh it's actually kind of ornate and, and I'm amazed that it's buried in most of the mixes, except for that British mono mix. If you get the uh, original, and, and this is the hardest thing to track down in many ways, if you get the original Yesterday and Today in uh, on capital T2553, um, the version, that, that is a unique mono mix of Dr. Robert, because at the end, you can at the fade out, you can hear John Lennon saying, okay, Herb. They've right. taken that's right, <laughs> they, and they take it out of everything. It's gone. I mean, you know, even when they did the, you know, they redid the U.S. mono albums, they faded that, they cut that bit off. So they, for whatever reason, they didn't leave the mumbling, as John would say, alone. <laughs> Everything he can, Dr. Robert. 
One thing that's uh, for all the musicians or guitar players out there, uh, I want to point out on this album, there's been a lot of comment about how great the guitar sounds are on this album. They sound completely different than Pepper. They sound completely different than uh, Rubber Soul. And one of the reasons is is the, the Beatles, they they were always um, receiving the, the best of the newest Vox amplifiers. And they, were, um, they had received these uh, Vox 7120s and they're a hybrid amplifier, and without going into too much detail, it's semi-solid state and half tube. Um, the thing is, is it's got a very unique tone to it, and you can hear it in "She Said, She Said," Doctor Robert. Just the, you know, the little guitar uh, uh, solo part and "Got to Get You Into My Life." It's very unique sounding. It's a very unique sounding amplifier. Very, very rare. You'd probably have to spend about thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars just to to get one of the heads nowadays. Um, very hard to come by and I've, I've seen one in person once and anybody that wants to hear one just go to YouTube and just Google Vox um, 7120 and even if if it's a novice guitar player just demonstrating it he'll be you you'll hear this you'll hear that tone and it'll be unmistakable it'll be that dr. Robert um, um, th- this uh, this tone is just it's just etched in our minds, and just you'll, you'll just hear it if you just go to YouTube and just Google that amplifier. Well, the next thing they tried to do, And Your Bird Can Sing, so the, the sort of uh, outtake version of that comes from the 20th of April. That outtake version that we hear on Anthology is a hybrid, actually, because the giggling didn't come from the actual recording of the song, did it? It was in no, between no. takes. Right. Yeah, so that, that, that was a little bit of... Uh, sort of slate of hand, right, uh, during anthology, it gave the impression that they're cracking up during the take. Yeah, I guess, you know, my only uh, defense of them, I suppose, was uh, in England there was a, 
a hit with a, an Elvis Presley record, which where he just laughed all the way through it a couple of years after he died. And uh, probably for the same reasons the Beatles were giggling in, in, in the studio, but they weren't giggling across that take. So you're right. That, that outfake, yeah. whatever reason they thought, maybe that just amused people. And maybe they didn't I, I have think enough maybe confidence. they were conveying the spirit of the sessions. Could be. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, George always said that these two albums were very happy albums for him, which always kind of shocked me because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he threw happy and recording with the Beatles around like it was a sewer cover from what I can see. <laughs> One, two, three, four. <laughs> You can't see me When your prized possessions Start to weigh you down Look in my direction I'll be round I'll be round in a cynical mood once again he talks about George talks about when um, one of the effects of taking acid in August of 65 was that he he just couldn't put up with the bullshit like bullshit really bothered him and he talks about uh, he recounts the story of after they dropped that acid and they're watching Cat Baloo and he just thought this was bullshit and hanging around with these starlets and the whole system was bullshit and it was all bothering him you know and this to me is his kind of another reflection a very odd out of kind of character for for a guy like george you know who's so trippy and gave so much away to people did so much charity work to be kind of bitching about the tax man well it's also interesting right that they end up selecting this as the opening track a george song as the opening track and what is the first thing that someone who's you know the last thing they played by the beatles is maybe yeah paperback writer and rain but they put on revolver and the first thing is a sort of weird counting with the tape speeding up and someone coughing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it certainly showed how far they'd come from I saw her standing there, didn't it? Right, yeah. But, I mean, otherwise, I don't know. I don't hear Taxman as a particularly trippy song, but it's all part of under that umbrella. It's all part of their experience at that time. 
other than Paul's Indian influenced guitar solo. Yes, sort of that's true. Tie, tying that all in. Yes. Well, but yeah. the uh, yeah, and the bass line is beautiful in there. That sort of loopy bass line he does. Oh, it's an amazing bass line. of uh, uh, you'd like to change this country in any way? Yes, I'd like to change it a lot. In what way? Well, the tax problem. What would you do with the tax? Well, I'd reduce it drastically. It... Give the pop stars a fairer share of the country's wealth. <laughs> they can't pull the, take the taxes down because they haven't got enough money. They'll never have enough money while they're buying all that crap, like F111's adult. Which they proved they're no use whatsoever because we're not all, you know, goods yeah, all that. that so if they pay off a few of the bloody debts, <laughs> then maybe they'll be able to cut the tax down a little, Arnold. Now, I, this is really one of my absolute, you know, favorite songs of George's. Uh, uh, you know, this one and If I Needed Someone, obviously from the previous album, I just think he's... Uh, these were like my favorite songs, you know, pretty much. They they rivaled anything that, that John and Paul were writing for me. I loved them. I, mean, I still love Taxman. It's just a, you know, in my top ten of all-time Beatles songs. It's probably you... one of the heaviest Beatles songs there is. It is, really, yeah. It, it's It's got that sort of downbeat George feel to it. Mm-hmm. 
And once again, I'm wondering if it, it, it this sort of there's something that seems slightly off kilter in the rhythm of what he's playing. And I wonder once again, is that that fabric of time issue with acid? You know, why it just seems so staccato and the it's all held together with kind of Paul's stuff. <laughs> you know, well, like, I mean, it, I mean, if you sit in the context of the other George song on this album, I want to tell you, which we'll be getting to, it certainly ties in with that, doesn't it? Yeah. The most memorable aspect of it for me is is Paul's lead guitar solo, um, and actually first finding out that it was Paul, not George, whose right. job was lead guitar, um, uh, was it, it's it's just a stunning solo and very much in, I think what we subsequently came to realize is Paul's style, um, and uh, and the other thing is that. Um, you know, thematically, I mean, I, I don't see much dissonance between George being generous with his charities and things like that and objecting to the government taking 90, 95% of his income. Um, I, 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 could, I could see how someone, you know, with his background coming from Liverpool, you know, as a relatively poor kid, finally making a lot of money and having to give 95% of it away probably is pretty galling. And there's that interview a couple of years later where the Beatles have now been off the road for a couple of years and the journalist says, well, you know, what would it take to get you, you know, back on the road? And he goes, well, it's just not worth it, is it? He goes, you know, it costs me money to go out on the road. And he he explains, he goes, in America, you know, they're much better with their tax structure and, you know, you can actually make some money on the road, but, ah, hell here, it's just not worth it. I'm just not going to bother. And, you know, so he was, he, the the sentiment of tax man was not a one-off. It did kind of come back later uh, with George, but uh, yeah, anyway. So what's next in the sequence? Well, technically the, the finished recording of And Your Bird Can Sing, and I suppose we should mentioned the the Sinatra theory as opposed to the Marianne Faithful theory. I, 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 you know, I think it's far too kind of mean-spirited to ever be about somebody they liked. So, uh, you know, the legend I've, you know, supposedly is it has something to do with uh, they had met Sinatra and didn't, or John didn't particularly care for him. and, And the bird was apparently Sinatra's slang for Little Frank. Ah, okay. so at least that's what I, you know, you know, it's one not never Frank knows. Sinatra Jr. Yeah, Frank Sinatra Jr. Jr. Yeah, uh, or Frank Sinatra the third Jr. Uh, so you know, Andrew Bird can sing, you know, a wonderful, a wonderful track in its finished form and a fun one and stuff. Uh, and but interestingly enough, one that Lennon didn't think much of. I know during the Playboy tapes, he kind of slags it off. Mm. So I, you know, for whatever reason, the next song that we really, you know very little doubt that this is acid influenced is I'm Only Sleeping, recorded on April 27th. And we have a special version now, you know. Um, there is a bunch of variations of, of I'm Only Sleeping. Most people think that there's four versions and there's a, a legend that there's a fifth one. And the fifth one is supposedly the French EP. Would you care to guess which version we're going to play right now? When I wake up early in the morning Yeah. 
That's just an amazing number by Lennon, right? You know, it, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, we know that he liked to spend his time sometimes in bed, just sort of daydreaming, and now he's dropping acid. He's non-communicative at home a lot of the time, and, uh, you know, he's just inside his head. And again, he's taking us on the trip with him. I also love the backing vocals on this. I think Paul does an amazing job of... Oh, yeah, you know, just just all. That's one thing. Once again, these backing vocals and the sort of uh, the way they approached them, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a couple of songs when we talk about "I Want to Tell You," that to me sounds different than what they'd ever done before. And was that just the maturation of their recording process, or was that acid tinged? Ooh, there's this possibility now. Apart from that backward segment, what about this song makes it? psychedelic or acid-laced. I can mention one spot in the lyrics that sort of does that, and but it may be that I'm just reading way too much into it, uh, and it probably was just coincidental in the way they do things. Um, but he talks about, you know, close my eyes and float upstream. Right. Um, in his original handwritten version, he had written downstream, and Downstream is the sort of natural expression, float downstream. Mm. Um, tomorrow never knows. Yeah. You're floating downstream, too. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. Um, floating upstream, I mean, if you think about it, it doesn't happen in reality. Right. If you're floating, you're going to go downstream where the water's going. <laughs> you wouldn't be floating upstream against the current. Um, and to me, that image is like such a disconnection from reality that that, or you know, or physical reality, or the, you know, the laws of physics, even it, it, that it 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 sort of signals to me that we you know we're in some place where the normal rules don't apply. I mean, do we know if these songs, any of them, all of them, were written actually while tripping on acid, or are they all kind of? coming out of the trip and, you know, trying to capture that impact. I don't think we have that info. Mm -mm. But, I mean, in those days, one is, tends to believe that maybe it was a bigger occasion if John was not dropping acid one day than, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. So some of this must have been influenced by that. I think there's that other, that one vocal moment, the, yeah, you know, just... I don't think I ever heard that in a record before, <laughs> you know. So to me, it's like he's ingested something. Um, you know, what drugs exactly? It actually could have been a good, you know, Quaalude song, speaking of Quaaludes again. Uh, mm. it, it just kind of goes along in this. It has this sort of druggy, sludgy, otherworldly feel to it for something that's so simply, you know, with such simple instrumentation. I find that it's it's probably the spookiest record I can think of with just an acoustic guitar and a little bit of percussion and, and some distant bass in it and Greg? vocals, you know. Yeah, it's very sleepy. I mean, if you, especially it seems like that's what they wanted to capture early on when you listen to the early 
the earlier takes with the vibes, it's just like you just you just want to take a nap. <laughs> but that's not to say I mean, it's boring. It's not a boring record. I love it. It's just no, it it's is, not at all. It's sleepy. That's true. And Paul's bass is definitely given its own space on this track, isn't it? It is. And uh, once again, Paul uh, sort of. Uh, sort of defies what bass players do and plays chords at times. And he seemed to do that a lot. And, and rarely do you hear bass players do that. And then he da -dum -bum -bling, plays an right. open E on that. And it's just, he's, he does that a lot. It's just great. The next song sequentially would have been Eleanor Rigby, which could be one of Paul's stories. There's that line, wearing the face that she keeps in the jar by the door. That I always heard as a Lennon line. I, I just didn't perceive that as coming from McCartney. I agree, yeah. yeah. That's true. And that is pretty trippy. It's poetic as well, right? The next tune would have been For No One. Which is one of Paul's finest lyrics for me. It's, it's so understated, and it's, it is poetic, but in this very understated way, and it's downbeat. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive for a McCartney song to me. What do you think, Craig? It is... Um... There, I really don't hear much of a, uh, a a drug reference at all in this particular song, but it's it's Paul really really bearing his soul and 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 we know that he didn't really do that that well, it's not nearly as well as Lennon did, and right. um, it's it's a really really a great lyric. The next one uh, would have been actually Yellow Submarine. The only real drug connection I can think of with Yellow Submarine is is that story that you know when they had inadvertently been given acid that. Uh, by the end of the night, there, John was running around the bungalow, and, or I think they went over to George's house, and he was running around thinking he was on a giant submarine. Uh, is there any special significance to the use of the term yellow submarine? No, not really. It's a happy place, that's all. You know, it was just, we were trying to write a children's song. That was the basic idea, and uh, there's nothing more to be read into it than the there is in the lyrics of, uh, you know, any children's song, Sparky. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Sparky. Sparky. Right. But isn't it really setting the precedent for Lucy in the Sky, which is also ostensibly another sort of childlike song, but clearly warped by the acid experience? I think the children's song thing, this is something that's really forgotten today. And there was a lot of rock and roll, legitimate rock and roll, that was truly aimed at children. I mean, one of the big hits right before Yellow Submarine came out that summer was Little Red Riding Hood by Sam the Sham. And there, you know, or any of those Snoopy and the Red Baron records, there was about 50,000 of those. And they, there would be these things that were specifically made for the pre-bubblegum people. I... I I wonder if it was just a marketing thing, like it's a good vehicle for Ringo and these things sell. You know, it's get that younger audience. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Okay, one of the great acid songs of all time is next. It was recorded on the 2nd of June in 66, so we're very late in the sessions now. And it's a George song, and it's called I Want to Tell You.
this is one that George himself said that it was kind of addressing the avalanche of thoughts that are so hard to write down or say or transmit when you are tripping and you hear that in the sort of stuttering guitar riff you you've got the dissonance that he employs in the melody and it's the whole thing about the struggle for meaningful communication and it i think it's brilliantly conveyed mm-hmm. yeah favorite song and I, I once again the the vocal work of mccartney on this especially in the fade out is uh is very psychedelic sounding to me this whole kind of like almost like an indian scale that he's trying to sing um, or Hindu, what, what, was it a, a Hindustani? Is that what it, you called it before? Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I've learned something new today. So like that sort of what I would call Indian, but I think Alan obviously knows more about this, the Hindustani type scale, except sung by a human, you know, by Paul. And that obviously stuck in his head because uh, I'm going to play you something really rare right now, okay? This is something that this uh, has never been heard publicly before. A couple of weeks later, after they've recorded that, the Beatles are out on the road starting their final tour of the world. And, they're, um, and the, one of the songs that, that was on that set for the rest of the summer was George's solo, which was If I Needed Someone. It was in Paul McCartney's head, doing backing vocals on a George song, that suddenly he grafts the end of I Want to Tell You into If I Needed Someone on the fade out and have a listen to this very rare snippet. Back to I want to tell you, another thing is, this was the first time that Paul overdubbed his bass part. Of course, that was setting a precedent, but it was the very first time that he recorded his bass part after the rest of the rhythm track had been laid down. Which is something he did all over Pepper, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It, the guitar tone, once again, is, is different on this song than um, any others. It sounds like he used his Strat. It sounds a little bit more like... Um, the the solo in uh, Nowhere Man. Um, at this time, on a lot of these other songs, he was using his Gibson SG, um, and so that's the, the the tone you hear predominantly coming out of George. So this one song, it, it's an interesting choice that he would use a Telecaster um, for that intro riff because it does sound different than any of the other tones on the album. If we're looking for uh, acid influence in here, uh, you, you could focus on the lyrics, and there are some very peculiar kind of lines, like, uh, if I seem to act unkind, it's only me, it's not my mind that's confusing things. And if you try to parse that, you know, what is the distinction between you and your mind confusing things? How can you confuse things if your mind isn't confusing things? I actually think it's quite brilliant because it's, we can hear his confusion, right? It's like he's getting lost (laughs) as he's saying (laughs) it, and it's in song. I think it's quite inspired. Next, sequentially, uh, Good Day Sunshine, a sunny hallucinogenic day. I don't necessarily hear it as a hallucinogenic day, but um, I, I could I could be persuaded. Um, I see it as more of um, you know an an attempt to find a 
Beatles way of capturing what the Love and Spoonful were up to mm. right. uh, in, in some of the things they were doing at the time. Oh, that's very um, interesting. Yeah, I just I just hear it in in, in more musical terms than in um, acid inspiration terms. But weren't the spoonful also acid inspired? Uh probably. Um, no more about them smoking than dropping acid. But yeah, that actually yeah, you're right. A sunshine, you know, blotter acid was around. I think of it as being slightly later. But was sunshine around early? Was it around in the mid '60s as opposed well, I think, to? I think orange sunshine was. Yeah, I think so. Uh, hmm. Maybe well, well, that could be a hint. Yeah, <laughs> that's where. Uh, anyway, yeah. that was the the question I always had. Was you know, I was by the time I'd listened to this lots and lots and lots, you know, it started hearing about orange sunshine and uh, oh, okay, so. It just, as a kid, I thought, oh, once I found out what that stuff was or heard about it from the big kids, I was like, oh, that must be a drug song, you know. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's Paul wanting to do uh, um, Daydream. And it, so I guess yeah. if we want to say if there's some sort of drug reference, do we, is, is there a reference to uh, drugs in Daydream by the Loving Spoonful? And I just think it's more of a just this song to me always just felt like the typical Sunday um, afternoon song. It's, uh, it's it's springtime or summer, and it just feels good to be outdoors. I'm not really reading too much more into it than that. A bit like the uh, the Kinks, right? Sunny afternoon. Sunny, after- Sunny afternoon. afternoon. I just heard that the other day, and it's funny because that song is probably the exact opposite. Because all these horrible things are going on in his life, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and yet he just he's just fine with just the sunshine. And it's it's that's a pretty dark song, actually. Yeah. It is, and that one, I, I always saw a comparison between that one and I'm Only Sleeping for some reason. They always reminded me slightly of each other. Hmm. I don't know why. Maybe just... maybe The just lazy the, aspect of it. Yeah, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, the, yes. feel, the feel works the same way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're down to our last two uh, tracks sequentially before the Beatles went running out on, on tour. So on the 16th of June, they recorded one of McCartney's best, Here, There, and Everywhere. Right. Well... It's just a beautiful song. We know it's his own favourite, he said, amongst his own songs. John said he thought it was the best one on the album, although, of course, Paul recalled him telling him that while they were filming Help in Austria. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the memory, it it means a lot more, I suppose, to us. We're Mm. we're more inclined. There's a few of those where, where... McCartney, you know, he. I think he still thinks that he did yesterday on the first Ed Sullivan show. That's one of the legendary uh, misremembering uh, And the, the Royal Variety show was in front of the Queen. Right. <laughs> so the last song they recorded on the 21st of June, only a couple of days before they head out on the road for the last time, She Said, She Said. We discussed this track earlier, but one thing about this that's very notable is that here's where Paul actually throws a hissy fit and walks out on the session. I think it was like particularly strong bonding between John and George on this track, and Paul may have felt that he was kind of getting squeezed here. Yeah, well, I mean, it does bring us back to where we started because it really is a song about August 24th or 25th, 1965, and and the experience that led to us to, you know, right to this point. So it's uh, I find it really fitting and interesting that this song ends our discussion in a sense because it takes us right back to where we began. 
I mean, is there any way of surmising where the Beatles would have gone without acid, where their music was taking them? Ah, so we would go, I guess, back to help because, um, you know, and, and not imagine Rubber Soul and Revolver, which, you know, could completely change everything. But if you look on the Help album, there are a lot of um, clues to the new direction in a way. I mean, and, and Yesterday in particular uh, is one of them. I mean, that's, that's actually, if, if you want to talk about maturity starting with Rubber Soul, you would then say, well, but what about Yesterday? I mean, that is a very mature song. Um, brings in a string quartet, all of that. I mean, that's pushing in a different direction. Whether they would have continued pursuing that, I don't know. They they only pursued it a little bit afterwards. I mean, with uh, he, with Eleanor Rigby and um, mm. she's leaving home. I guess mm, uh, yeah. maybe even Good Night. But uh, part of me wants to say that if not for the drug involvement, they might have continued as a more conventional pop band. But even without drugs, the Beatles never were going to continue as a conventional pop band. They were going to always go someplace yeah. else. Right, which is what um, Craig was saying at the beginning, right? It's who they were. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'd have to live in an alternate universe for this to happen. But what if the Beatles never did take the drugs? Like, like McCartney, if he did hold out and say, well, I'm not going to take acid, and the other Beatles didn't do it, would their star have faded a lot sooner? Because you've got everybody else in the whole known world musically dropping acid. You got you got Brian Wilson battling over on the other side. You got the whole San Francisco movement. You got all this stuff happening. What if they never took acid and they never got involved in drugs? Would they have fizzled out somewhere in '66 and '67? Like say, I can use um, the Beach Boys for example for not doing Monterey Pop because they're them, them thinking they may not be hip enough for it, getting up there in their candy-striped uh, uh, shirts with everybody else and feeling that it's... It, and, and it was a point, a pivotal point for the Beach Boys to all of a sudden, they're, they're not relevant anymore. Would the Beatles have not been relevant? I think there's a distinct possibility, Craig. I really do. I, I think I, I dislike feeling that way and feeling that drugs were important and and whatever but i i think you're exactly right i think they could have been perceived uh you know uh brian had he finished the smile album right. uh, in time where he lost that sort of production race maybe 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 but the combination of that and and struggling with their former image i think you're exactly right i think they could have fizzled out I'm not so sure about that. I mean, are we saying that without psychedelics, specifically psychedelics, w would the Beatles have never got to the White Album or Abbey Road? Oh, I don't think they would have got to either of those without the drugs, no. No, they wouldn't have. I don't think so either. Hmm. I think they, the possibility of survival, as I say, the one p alternate path that could have happened is, like I say, uh, George Martin a few years later... Uh, after he toyed with C-Train, right, or whatever, up in Marblehead here, a couple of towns away from me, um, after that didn't really work out, he latched on, you know, to America, the band American, had a great run with them and a lot of hits with them. I could have seen that sort of country rock, soft California-ish thing happening uh, if the Beatles had never taken drugs. But, you know, when you mentioned that, Craig, when you posed that question, are you aware of this 
TV thing that went on in England some years ago where uh, these it was a comedy uh, and it was they, 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 there were skits on somebody's comedy show and God I can't remember who it was but it, the whole skit was what would have happened if the Beatles never took drugs and John Lennon never moved to New York. And so here mm. were the Beatles still dressed, except with gray hair, with the Beatle haircuts and the original suits. And, and, and <laughs> right. Do you remember that? Richard knows what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, but that, that would have never happened. I mean, really, it's kind of an interesting topic, this, but what are the odds that, I mean, really, for the Beatles to have not done drugs, drugs would have to not exist. Well, and we know that because of their, we were talking about that earlier, their past. I mean, they had, you know, with their, their pills and, and Hamburg and their pot yeah. smoking with Dylan and, and all that. We knew that they experimented with everything. Yeah. But the real question is, I mean, I think getting back to the, the, the comment before that was where they would have gone is probably they would have become more introspective and more serious songwriters from a musical standpoint, which probably would have... Um, got a little bit more cred from Quincy Jones if they would have been that <laughs> but um but yeah they probably would have gone more introspective with their lyrics and 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 disenchanted with fame and probably um I I don't know maybe they would have gone into their version of prog rock as much as they could possibly do for being the musicians that they were who knows so are we concluding then that psychedelics really permanently improved the the arc of their career yes i think so hmm. it was part of their story i think it's incredible you know that that's what they did and you know john did that all the way through his solo careers was taking us on the journey with them you know not all artists are going to do that but with them it was like especially with john he wants to share this yeah and and as i say it it the influence of it is felt by people who didn't physically do that as we said at the top of the show you had groups like oasis and the jam and uh, other admirers who took those textures and made parts of them their own or, or elaborated on it but those textures wouldn't have have been in the current it wouldn't have been part of the scene had the beatles not at that moment i mean now it would be a contrived thing i think that's another de de element of their drug use in a sense with psychedelics it remember these weren't illegal drugs yet <laughs> I mean, this was perfectly legal to take acid until 1967. So I think that it it's just, it was part of that time, that moment. Anything else would be contrived. It wasn't contrived for them. They were right in the moment as it was happening. And that's part of the great result. And that's why you really can't, one of my favorite uh, homegrown expressions is you can't reheat the souffle. In fact, I think actually at the moment that is what we want to do, what we did, what we've done on Revolver. But if we did, like, all the way out things, I mean, I suppose people think they're way out. I don't, actually, but that, that kind of thing. If we did all, a whole album of them, then uh, we'd be doing what, like, the people who do electronic music do. They go too far out too suddenly, and no one stays with them. You know, everyone else is left behind because they're miles out ahead, sort of digging all this electronic stuff. But in fact, what we've tried to do is I do the last album, Rubber Soul, a bit more towards that, then this one a bit more, and the next one should be a bit more. And if people stay with us, you know, it's great. Lovely. In the sense that uh, Revolver and Pepper probably couldn't have existed if not for the drugs, um, I think that's pretty much all you have to say because Revolver and Pepper are so central to the Beatles' creativity mm. and the arc of the Beatles' creativity that... Um, you know, if 
if it has to be attributed to drugs, well, you know, then it has to be attributed to drugs. But, um, you know, I think there's I think there's more than drugs, obviously, um, you know, as, as, as Craig said, they were going to do different things anyway. How different they would have been from what we know, uh, obviously, we can't say, but um, but definitely drugs are an important part of the soul of both those albums, Revolver and Pepper. Maybe less Rubber Soul, although I think we've established that there was some, mm. but but I think that was an outcome of where they were probably heading anyway. Tell me something, Paul. Um, do you have an actual policy of, of your work, or do you just sort of play it off the top of your head? Which I really <laughs> just off the top of our head, Tom. Just, just uh, you know, for kicks. You sure of that? Sure. Plain deal. Hallucinations? Sure, sure. Just off the top, you know, Purple Hearts? Yeah, you know, all them pop groups take them. Yeah. Do you, John? No, never touch them. I don't think Ringo knows what they are, I do you? Like bonanzas. No, I don't. I like bonanzas. <laughs> <laughs> what are bonanzas? I just made it up in case there's any vicars listening. I see. What, what, what about morning glory seeds? Never seen any, actually. I wouldn't oh, fancy no. eating a flower, even for the laugh. <laughs> <laughs> OK. So before we pass around the orange sunshine, what are we playing out with? Well, did we play She Said, She Said? No, I suppose we could go out with that, couldn't we? Just that this song brings us back to where we started, Richard, and I think that that's right. the fitting song to play out with. Said, I know what it's like to be dead, I said. I said, I must be out of my head, he said. I said, he said, I know what it's like to be dead. Like I've never been born 
Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Paper bag, right? 